after a week like this, don't you think we need to worship? Oh, man, y'all can say it better than that. After a week like this, don't you think we need to worship? Yes, we need the gospel. (laughs) Um, We need the gospel. How many of you agree with that? Uh, I'm just going to ask you something. There's certain things I shouldn't have to beg for amen off of. I mean, I mean, I, every day, um, I need Jesus' gospel to shepherd my heart and mind. And when you see your news feed on Facebook, if you're not in your Bible, uh, if you're not preaching the gospel to yourself, if you're not looking at the, the eschatological hope to have block impact now, you will lose your mind. And so I'm glad, I'm glad that we don't get to just lament the brokenness of our society, um, but we get to have the gospel tool of the nature and purpose of Jesus Christ to help us to work through what needs to be worked through in order that the church can be change agents here. And so that's our desire. Um, Stand to your feet. Uh, Our format for the day is going to be a bit different. I'm going to preach for about 10 minutes, and then I am going to invite a panel of uh, gospel-soaked professionals up here with me to help us to do an autopsy on America. And, um, and, and, and what I want them to help us to do with this autopsy um, is to really help frame for us historically, psychologically, uh, and uh, sociologically, uh, and racially, uh, if you will, uh, the um, uh, uh, frame those things from a biblical perspective, yet from a general revelation perspective. And then my role will be to splash in and nurture special revelation in the realities of their findings as professionals in the world. Is that all right with you? Then we'll have a Q&A time with them that we have already uh, pushed questions on. Another week we'll have some text ends, but today we got this together real quick. So let's go before the Lord uh, um, by reading what's up on the board. We're in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter... Yeah, I know. I, I'm, you know, I'm scrambled, y'all. Uh, Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. On three, let's read. One, two, three, go. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Yeah. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Amen. Amen. We're taking a break from our series for a few weeks on uh, 2 Corinthians and we are going to start a three-week series today called Woke Church. Amen. Let's, uh, let's go before the Lord. Let's every head by every eye close. Um, living Father, we are in desperate need of you. Um, even in Stevie Wonder's estimate in the 1970s when he wrote the songs in the key of life, he had a song on there called Love's in need of love today. And um, Lord, I, 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 it, it's, it's really a, a, a need that we feel today that the idea of who you are and your nature and your work just isn't making its way into how we think. So we need you to break some strongholds in the spiritual warfare of America. Um, we're dealing with spiritual warfare, not people. People are the result of the enemy's tactics to destroy the reflection of Imago Day on planet Earth. And God, I'm praying today that you would help us with some answers, help us to move forward as the people of God who should be on the forefront of communicating what does Jesus have to do with this. And so God, in the mighty name of Jesus, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, our strength and our redeemer, in whom we trust. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Everybody agree with that said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. You may um, be seated. Um, You know, know, Friday, as I I felt like I was just, I don't know why this week as I was doing sermon prep, I just kept hitting uh, what readers would call a reader's block or writer's block or whatever you want to call it. And then um, when everything happened, I was in Dallas at the time, uh, and everything happened in Charlotte, I was just like, I, I just sort of paused and was still working on the message, but 
it was clear to me that we have to, um, you know, I'm to the point where I, I'm not really trying to just have another racial reconciliation rally. Um, and that's not, that's not me being irreconcilable. But I think what's happening is, is we're in a place in Christianity where we're trying to convince people that don't believe racism exists to believe that it is exists in order that they may help us to deal with the fact that racism exists. I'm done with that. I'm not trying to convince you that racism exists anymore. If you're in this country and you don't realize that racism exists and prejudice exists, which are two different things, yet one goes under the umbrella of the other one, then, then there, there are a lot of other people that want to do that. But we're, I'm, I'm to the point where now I have to. I'm consumed with the necessity that something has to be done. I, I, I'm consumed that something has to be done, yet I feel powerless at the same time because in my own power and in my own might, if I'm honest, I want to riot. If, if, I'm, if I'm honest, I want to go throw some trash in the streets. If, 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 if I'm honest, I want to say some pre-salvific and sometimes post-salvific words. If I'm honest, yet there is a restrainer that lives in me that stops me from sinning because of my anger. And so today we come to a passage that I think is just a beautiful passage that points ultimately to uh, our Lord who is the ultimate king and who's the ultimate ruler and who's the ultimate one who is able to make this clear. Now, when you hear me talk about the hope of the future, don't hear me acting like I'm ignoring the now. Because if I don't have faith in the fact that Jesus is going to make things better, I won't do nothing now. Because to me, doing something now in human ability is still going to have somebody doing some sinful thing after the change or quasi-changes have happened in order to mess it up all over again. So I got to have faith that there is going to be an ultimate eternal change that's going to happen one day. So in this passage, we have... Uh, uh, the, 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 the compiler of Proverbs compiling this section as a way under the Spirit, it's powerful, to culminate what Proverbs is about. And it uses the relationship between a queen mother and a king to display the beauty of what it means to act wisely. In the book of Proverbs, there's two groups of people. There are the community of the fools and there are the community of the wise. The wise are those who fear God, the fool are those who ignore and don't fear God. And so we come here to a passage where the queen is teaching her son who will one day be king. And it's interestingly enough that um, this queen is being personified as wisdom that teaches uh, uh, of the greatest of leadership in history, which is a monarchical king. And so this mother is teaching all different types of things. She says, son, you're going to be a king one day. And he's probably ignoring her because he likes the power. You know, he's ready to get, he's a prince probably now. He's ready to, you know, he's ready to get his keeping watching Pops. He's ready, he's like, man, Pops move out of the way. I'm ready to wreck shop as a king. But the mother, the queen mother acts as the character of his cleanliness. And what she does is she tells him several things. Son, when you get in power, there are chicks that don't like you that's going to like you. You're going to have to fall back from them. Now, let me tell you in the latter part of this on how to choose a wife, because with all of that stuff coming at you, son, you're going to have to learn how to pick a wife because it's going to be a lot of jump-offs around. That's a good mother, ain't it? If you don't know what a jump-off is, just ask somebody afterwards. Um, and, 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 but, but however, what's interesting is neatly nestled in the middle of that is her giving him dictates on how to use his power. Because the natural tendency of one in leadership and privilege is not to utilize their power and their privilege on behalf of someone else. 
And so what she begins to do is she begins to tell him, this is what you're going to have to do because there are going to be the aristocrats and those who are in power that are going to try to influence your kingliness to use it for them and degradate those who don't have a voice. Therefore, I want you to look beyond the foolishness of those who are in the aristocrat positions and who try to keep everything for themselves and press down on people that don't have a voice. Press down on people uh, that are not like them. Press down on people that they want to work on behalf of them continuing the legacy of their privilege and wealth. Does that sound familiar? But we come here and we hear it right here. She says, open your mouth to the mute. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. It's interesting here <coughs> that this idea points to the idea. I like the way the CEV lays it out. It says, you must defend. Um, I think that the mother sees something beautiful, particularly in the second verse, which she says, beautifully, uh, she says, open your mouth, judge righteously. Somebody says righteously. righteously. Now, what's interesting here is she's utilizing, this mother is a theologian. And so what she's doing is she's using the, the, the two-sided coin of justice and righteousness. The same word for justice and righteousness in the Bible is the, is the same word, but it's based on what background you come from when you translate it, how you're going to translate it. Oh, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother issue. But ju justice points to extrinsic execution of the heart of God. Uh, a righteousness means intrinsic impact by the heart of God. So, so, so in order for justice to be done, you have to be intrinsically changed by God. Yeah. In, in, in other words, justice doesn't come by legislation. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, help me today. <clears throat> because you can legislate stuff, but then find loopholes to still act a fool. Yeah. So, 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 you can, so we, we can go to the executive branch, we can go to the legislative branch, we can go to the judicial branch, we can go get whatever kind of uh, supreme justices we want to put in place. But at the end of the day, legislation doesn't change hearts, the gospel does. <laughs> now, do we press for legislation? Yes. Do we press for systemic change? Yes. Do we maximize the advantages of being born in America, which has a more, uh, 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 it has on paper and Imago Dei philosophy that's had to be edited over the years, like our original Star Spangled Banner or the original uh, Constitution uh, that excluded those. And so now we have to begin to hold America accountable to what it says it's supposed to do. That means the church's voice must go from pathetic to prophetic. Now, when I say prophetic, I'm not talking about foretelling. We got a bunch of people foretelling the future. Always telling what's going to happen. That's foretelling. Forthtelling is talking, taking this and talking about how do I look at uh, the internet? How do I look at Facebook? How do I look at Extra Large Magazine? How do I look at Enterprise Magazine? How do I look at Black Enterprise? How do I look at Ebony? How do I look at Vogue? And how do I hold that and look in and let Washington Times and uh, 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 the New York Times and all of those different new newspapers have its potency to let us know where things are. But if you just look at that, you're going to get real depressed. So you got to hold up a Bible on this side while you're looking at that foolishness so that you can be like, ah, I got to get some hope. So what we have to train ourselves in is we have to be an Issacharian generation, which means that the Bible says that the sons of Issachar knew the times and knew what Israel ought to do. If you help me there, it's interesting because the Hebrew text says it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting because it's an it's a adjectival hendiatus there. It's, it, 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 it's, it's yadah banach, which means it talks about the death of which Israel, particularly Issachar, intimately knew how messed up things were, how jacked up things were, how broken things were, yet they were looking at God's word to find hope and solutions that would practically impact them seeing where things are. It's not enough to just see where things are, but we have to impact where things are. And so our hope today is that we would cascade through general revelation coupled with special revelation. General revelation is seeing creation and knowing that God exists. Romans 1. Special revelation is using the fact that God breathed his word for us to use the word of God to be profitable for everything in our life. So I'm going to invite our professionals to the stage and I'm going to introduce them. They're going to be up here with us and I'm going to give them six minutes each. And um, as they go through these six minutes, 
They're going to be a very concise six minutes. And we're going we're gonna to hit these six minutes each. We have Dr. Tiffany Gill, which is a professional uh, uh, in the area of history. She's a professor in history at University of Delaware uh, and, and a prestigious fellow as well. So we're thankful for her. Let's give God a hand praise for her. <clears throat> we have uh, Dr. Welbeck as well, who uh, does, uh, he teaches African-American studies at Temple University and is also a lawyer. So he got a, he got, you know, he a professor and a lawyer. So educated brother. Um, then, uh, so everybody up here, they just got a lot of education up here. Um, and so you got uh, Sar Dr. Sarita Lyons, which is both a clinical psych psychologist and she has a Juris Doctorate as well. So she got two doctorate degrees. And, um, and she's a psychotherapist well known for counseling people throughout the Delaware Valley. And then we have uh, also uh, Pastor Larry Smith, who is one of the elders here, who, who will be talking to us as well. Amen. Amen. All of them are going to be gospel soaked. I'm excited and happy. And so the six minutes began as soon as Dr. Gill hits the podium. On three. She's going she to get in place. You can get your mic. Okay. Grab that mic, Pastor Larry, please. Thanks. Yep. Begin. And then as soon as she begins, we're just going to go with each one right after that framing for us. Good afternoon, family. Um, it's really an honor to, to come before you. Um, and I'm so grateful that the pastors and leadership of this church are shepherding us through this. Um, that we're not having to look to the world for hope or instruction, but that we can, in the presence of God, with the people of God, begin to think through these issues and come up with a plan. So my task is to reflect on some key points in American history that have gotten us where we are, um, and supposed to do that in five or six minutes, um, which is difficult since my students usually have to walk through this in about 15 weeks, but you all can hang because you know Jesus. So let's start. Um, and I need them too, so pray for me too. Um, I could start in 1619 with the first set of cargo, and that's how the first set of Africans were called when they landed in what's now Virginia. But I'm actually going to take us back a little bit further in history. Um, don't, don't let me lose you with this. This is important. We're living the consequences of what may seem to be ancient history. Um, but to talk about the origins of race and the, its consequence in racism. And we see that really we can think of it as the, the enemy moving on the hearts of men who were sought on seeking after wealth and power. And we see Europeans, and, and of course they were not the first ones to do this, we even have that struggle in our own society and culture, but we see Europeans in this quest for wealth and power engaging with the continent of Africa with the sole purpose of exploiting its resources. And they learned that the continent's best resources were in fact its people. And so we see really what 1 Timothy 6.10 warns us about coming to life as the root of what comes to be known as the United States. That the love of money being at the root of all kinds of evil. And indeed it is this love of money and power which set into motion this system of racial inequality. And so we see that when Europeans encounter Africans, they begin to look at the differences of Africans and begin putting them on a sense of hierarchy, where anything that was associated with blackness became ugly, sinful, disgraceful, and where their own sense of themselves became enlightened in ways that were not productive. Um, and so when the United States actually gets to be formed, we see that these practices, this hierarchy, this quest for wealth begins to really take hold. We see that when slavery exists in the new world, in what comes to be known as the United States, we see something different than the way that slavery played out anywhere else in history and in the world. And that major difference, and this is an important distinction for us to think about, is that people were equated as property. People were equated as human chattel, as human property, as objects. 
And I can think of no deeper sort of violation of the Imago Dei, the fact that people are made in the image and likeness of God, that they are legally designated as property. Um, and this is something that is a great affront that we have just continued to build on in this country. And so as we think about this nation and we think about its history, we have to reconcile the fact that the very DNA of this nation is marked by the destruction of black life. The Declaration of Independence with its beautiful language about equality and freedom was written with ink brought to Thomas Jefferson by people he held captive. Our Constitution protected slaveholders and even counted slaves, every five slaves as three people when it came to representation. Folks were so intent on holding people in bondage that our nation rose against each other in a civil war. The only civil war we've had in this nation has been over the, the rights of slaveholders to hold people as property. Think about that. When we think about civil wars in other countries, we had one here, and it was about black people as property. Unless we think these are things in the past, let me just give you an example of how this impacts current policy. The United States has a unique policing system, okay? That we can also think of other adjectives for it, but it's a unique policing system. And those who have studied the history of policing wonder why the United States system of policing is different than any other industrialized country in the world. Well, it is because it is based on the practice of slave patrolling that the way that neighborhoods are surveilled in communities today is directly linked to that, right? We can even think about the 13th Amendment, which freed the slaves, right? That's we think of as, as, as a freedom slave. It says, it's not entirely true. It does say that slavery is still permitted in this country as a punishment for a crime, right? So it should be no surprise to us that we see such inequities in our justice system because the very historical foundation of these things are based on injustice. So what do we do? Am I up here trying to start a revolution, um, bring about a black nationalist revolution and make white folks feel bad? Absolutely not, absolutely not. Those of us who love Jesus and are called to bear his name have to think about our response, have to prayerfully engage our responses. That does sometimes mean we do get angry in the way that Jesus would when he saw exploitation and overturned tables. Sometimes that means we call out corrupt leaders. It always means that we care for those, just as pastor preached to us, and spend time with those who the world finds expendable. It means that we can never let our anger overshadow our call to be peacemakers and reconcilers, and we can never lose hope. And so if you are upset, and if you're upset that this is a history that you have not engaged, whether you are African American, whether you're from the Caribbean, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're white, whatever your racial background may be, you should be upset. Because without knowledge, it is hard to know how to proceed. So what I try to do in just my brief time here, which is up, is just to give us a framework so that we can understand what we're up against, but always keep that in light of the hope of eternity that we as believers possess. Thanks. My Lord, good afternoon, family. So Dr. Gill is very difficult to follow, but I will do my best. Um, I am encouraged, humbled, and honored to be here in this moment participating in this, and I thank God for the leadership here to be courageous, then take a stand, and to lead the church in this hour, because the church does have a history with race in this nation. As Dr. Gill said, that first ship carrying human cargo was named after our Lord. The Ku Klux Klan, that domestic terrorist organization, they say they are a Christian organization. When Dylan Roof sat in Emmanuel AME last year, he was a dutiful attendant of Sunday school. Our nation has a deep history. This church, of the Church of Jesus Christ, has a deep history in America. Sometimes of fighting against this thing, like we see with the Civil Rights Movement, and both in, in the 1870s and then in the 1940s and 50s, but again now. But anyway, let's talk about this a little bit. So, I oftentimes talk, I tell my students in class about um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. 
And in it, um, El Haj Malik El Shabazz, as he came to be called later, him and Alex Haley, the way that book came across is they would sit down and Alex would interview Malcolm. And then he would take, uh, he would take notes and then he would write something and then he would send it back to Brother Malcolm and Brother Malcolm would send him back revisions and they would do that often. And because Brother Malcolm traveled so much, sometimes they had to meet wherever they could. And one time they met in an airport and um, Brother Malcolm saw a family immigrating from Eastern Europe. And he leaned over to Alex Haley and he said, the first word in English they will learn after hello is the N-word. While that might not be literally true, he understood the spirit of that was true and he was communicating this idea that America has a racial hierarchy. There is a caste system. There is stratification, and people quickly learn that we put white at the top, we put black at the bottom. And as a result, it's, 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 it's ingrained in the history of who we are. I tell my students that the Bill of Rights is not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were commands. God expected his people to follow them diligently, to keep the commandments in whole because it was supposed to reveal the presence of sin in them. It was supposed to make them a nation, an example to the nations. And it was also supposed to ultimately show them that they needed him, that they couldn't do it by themselves. The Bill of Rights are a series of constitutional guarantees. This nation said that we will create laws well after this document is drafted, well after it's ratified. And every law that comes after this will, will be ingrained with these principles. And we have been denied the full access of those things from the beginning. So then it makes sense then that we had slavery for 250 years. It makes sense that we had Jim Crow for 90 years. It makes sense that we had segregated housing for 35 years. The federal government subsidized the mortgage market and allowed people to be able to own homes easily and denied African Americans the right to own homes the same way that they did elsewhere. And the thing is, we know in the United States that home ownership, land ownership, is one of the easiest ways most people accumulate wealth. And African Americans were routinely, systematically denied that, and then relegated to the most least desirable parts of cities. And then those cities were denied resources. Those schools of those cities, of those parts of the cities, were then funded by property taxes. And we say education is the great equalizer in the United States. And then we set a structural imbalance from the beginning. And then we put people in these positions, and then we set the preconditions for failure, and then we step back and watch them fail. And then we blame them for deficiencies that they did not create. That's why, if you listen to the musings of some philosophers, they may not have gone to school, but some philosophers like J. Wayne Harris, that's Young Jeezy, or Clifford Harris, that's T.I., or Andre Benjamin, it's Andre 3000. If you listen to them, they will tell you it's a trap. Because if you try to get out on a legitimate side, your schools are failing, you're getting an inadequate education. And even if you do right and go to school and get an education and stay out of trouble, the University of Chicago released a study last summer that said a black man with a college degree and no criminal record has a lesser likelihood of getting a job as a white man with a high school education and a felony record. There's housing, there's, there's housing discrimination, there's job discrimination, and then we're putting people in schools we know are failing. So then people in this trap understand that. And they say, why should I spend my life devoting myself to this, knowing that it's a trap anyway? So then they try the illegitimate side, and you know you're gonna end up leaving in a box or in a cage, but some people are willing to take that risk. That's why that philosopher I was telling you about, Andre Benjamin or Andre 3000, I can't condone all of his content, but what I can say is he speaks to a reality that many people are living. In an artist storytelling on, on, on their album, Equimini, he tells the story of Sasha Thumper. And he says one day they're, they're children, they're teenagers, they're outside looking at the stars above. And he, said, he asks her, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, I said, what you want to be? She said, alive. She said, alive. It's, this condition is so bleak, so full of despair, so hopeless that people just want to live to be able to survive it the same way their ancestors wanted to survive the Middle Passage. And it makes sense, when, when daily we are, our eyes are filled with the spectacle of black death, we just saw Terrence Crutcher die in front of us. We watched Jay Lamont, no, I'm sorry, Keith Lamont Scott die in front of us. We watched Tyree King die in front of us. Just like Jonathan Crawford and Tamir Rice, we watched Sandra Bland be thrown around like a rag doll for refusing to put out a cigarette. They don't do that to white women, they don't. And they don't kill black, white men and children the way that they kill black men, women, and children. They don't. 
and that's just what it is. And we as a church who profess to, to walk in the light and to love our brothers and to respect the dignity of life and say that all people are created in the image of God, that should offend you. That should make you angry. That should make you want to seek after God the Father and say, what can I do? to change this. When our Lord himself said he is acquainted with the brokenhearted, when our Lord himself fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he raised the dead. If, if, if our earthly concerns were of no matter to him, he wouldn't have done any of that. But he did. And he said, what you have done to the least of these, you have done unto me. We must be with the least of these, all of us. God has given us power privilege, time, talent, treasure that we can do. And, and I'm grateful for an opportunity to participate in that as well. Thank you. I'm going to do something out of character. I'm going to be brief. Some of you may have noticed I'm white. It's true. I was born white. I'm still white. And when Jesus comes back, if I'm still here, I'm going to be white. I was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1962. I lived in Alabama and Mississippi as a, a young child. And I remember, particularly in my days in Mississippi, it was a time when they were integrating schools. And I, I remember watching nightly on the television racial riots that were going on. I went to a Catholic school. We didn't have those issues. I was sheltered from it. I simply saw it. And then moved up to upstate New York, and uh, I graduated from a high school with 250 in my graduating class. There was one African American. I was in a white, white world. Uh, and, and, and growing up, it wasn't so much something that I learned uh, or that was taught to me, but it's just something I caught is that white was normal, was the way things are. I didn't even think of it in those terms at all until I went off to college and I had uh, an African-American roommate who played John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Stevie Wonder songs in the key of life. And I said, what is going on here? Uh, and he also was a Christian and helped bring me to Christ. But uh, what, what I found out was that so many of the constructs I had about normalcy were actually uh, not normalcy at all, but was a, a racist way of looking at things. Uh, some time ago, I, I came across an article by a woman by the name of Peggy McIntosh, a seminal article that she wrote in 1989 called The Knapsack of, of White, the, the, the Hidden Knapsack of White Privilege. And the idea of it is, and I found this to be so true in my life, that white privilege is something that is wrapped up in such a way that if you're white, you have no idea it's actually there. You're not thinking that the reason I'm not followed in this store, or the reason that when I'm pulled over by the cops, I know I did something wrong and it's going to be okay. I'm not thinking that because I'm treated a certain way is because I'm white. It's just the way things are. But what she describes in that article is the fact that white privilege, she says, is like having an invisible set of passports, of checks, of different things that allow you to navigate through the world in such a way that you don't have to think about a lot of things that my black brothers or black sisters have to think about every day. Don't even have to consider it. And so coming to an awareness of the, the, the racial mentality in America and the history that my brothers and sisters are talking about today. Let, let me just end by saying this. I did a sermon here a few months ago from Luke chapter 4 where Jesus is announcing his ministry. And in the announcement of his ministry, he says, I came to proclaim good news to the poor. He says, I'm coming to, to set captives free. And he says, I'm coming to, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Any gospel that we have that does not recognize and realize the conditions that are uh, uh, going on all around us in this world, and particularly uh, as it comes to race in America, if we have a gospel that doesn't address that, then we don't have a gospel based on this Bible. 
We don't have a gospel that Jesus would recognize, that Isaiah would recognize, that Mark, Luke, Paul, and John would recognize. But we have a different gospel. And so my prayer is that as the church rises up, it won't simply be the black church rising up. But the church of Jesus Christ, made up of white, brown, black, and every other race and you will rise up in the name of God and cry out for justice and righteousness in Jesus' name. Amen. Good afternoon. It's an honor and a privilege to co-labor and serve on this panel today. And what I want to say is that my colleagues, everyone that has spoken so far, they've done a great job of painting what we as clinicians would call a clinical picture, even though it is a gut-riching truth of the black experience here in this country. And while assessments and diagnoses help explain the functioning of individuals, only individuals usually, I would like us to open up our minds for a moment and give me permission to sort of diagnose a nation of people and review their historic and current life functioning and as scientists do, make predictions about the likely outcomes for success and failure of people. And I can't help but notice in any clinician worth their salt would be able to say that an entire race of people for centuries have individually and vicariously been experiencing repetitive trauma that would result in what is called race-based traumatic stress at best, and at worst have developed post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms due to overwhelming, unrelenting, unacknowledged, and unrepented racism. While trauma is a well-known term that we use often in our culture, I want to give us a, a definition of psychological trauma. Okay, so a traumatic event creates psychological trauma when the event overwhelms the individual's ability to cope and leaves that person fearing death, alienation, mutilation, and psychosis. Okay, and individuals may feel emotionally, cognitively, physically overwhelmed, and I would add spiritually overwhelmed as well, because many in the black community who are also Christians conceptualize racism from a spiritual warfare standpoint and engage it in that way as well. So the trauma of racism, that's my job today, refers to the cumulative negative impact of racism on people of color, and it crosses educational, uh, sociological bounds, and we're really looking at the invisible trauma that black people are walking around with. So when humans are threatened, and this is just clinical stuff, we respond in three basic ways, but I want you to keep all of this information with racism as the backdrop. So here are the three ways we respond. Fight, flight, and freeze. Now, most people have heard of fight and flight. Fight is the aggression that you often see as a result of feeling threatened. And we know flight is either physically or emotionally withdrawing from a situation. But people also freeze. And that is the numbness, the feeling of being stuck. I can't speak. I can't act. I can't process. And we see these iterations play out among the black community. Okay, and racism and this idea of post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of racism is a new body of research. There are several psychologists and sociologists studying this correlation, but we need more. And one of the reasons why the research isn't fast moving is because we need it funded and we also need the white individuals and institutions that usually even allow these periodicals and journal entries to be accepted and submitted have to also identify racism as a traumatic event. And currently, right now, the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders does not classify racism as a traumatic event. Okay, and so when you're looking at PTSD, the things that you often see are intrusive memories, 
Okay, recurrent, unwanted, distressing memories of traumatic events, things that we associate with flashbacks, maybe having upsetting dreams, or then there's avoidance, trying to avoid thinking about it or talking about it, avoiding people, places, things, police, institutions where you perceive a racist threat could occur. Negative changes in one's mood, negative feelings about yourself. I mean, racism changes your sense of self, identity, and, and who you are and the value of your life in this world. Um, lack of interest in things, hopelessness about the future. Changes in emotional reactions is what we classify as arousal symptoms. So there might be irritability or anger or outburst, outburst or aggressive behavior. Overwhelming feelings of guilt and shame and self-destructive behavior and trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, and always being on edge. Come on, you know how KRS said, whoop, whoop, that's the sound of the police? Come on, the sound of the beast? When white people hear that whoop, whoop, it's like, what did I do? When black people hear it, it's like, what's about to be done to me? And so there is a trigger that people are experiencing in the world that most people are not. Okay, African American Men's and Boys Advisory Board through the Heinz Council, um, they had this report issued that African Americans are experiencing racism in three forms. So they experience it personally, so that may be the actual racist event occurring to you, but then there is what we call vicarious trauma, or a second, secondary trauma that people can experience by just the constant stream of videos and news media of seeing black people shot and murdered and choked to death while they scream, I can't breathe, and children running away from the police and being shot in the back. That's vicarious trauma, and it is accepted when you consider war veterans, vicarious trauma is an acceptable thing when you consider how people are treated when they treat rape victims, but we still have not in this country classified racism as a traumatic event. And I just want to say also here, if you think about how or why even rape victims don't like to report, and it seems like an obvious thing, if you've been molested, you should report, but the three categories that keep people from oftentimes standing up for themselves in the face of a trauma for rape can be made analogous to why black people sometimes are frozen with fear or apprehension. The first thing is when people are not believed. And so if a young lady says, I was raped and by mom's boyfriend, and then they're saying, no, you're crazy. I mean, that is re-traumatization. Yeah. But see, but that's exactly what we're experiencing as black people. We're told that was 400 years ago. There's no more racism. We're, ca we're called or thought to be petty or, or minimize it. So not being believed is number one. Number two is when people are then having to experience the perpetrator go without any accountability or justice. And so people don't want to speak up in those instances. And then lastly, when people are asked to be held culpable for the very crimes that have been committed against them. And so I just want to end in the last seconds that I have by laying out just quickly what are some of the ways African Americans are responding to racism. Increased aggression, increased vigilance and suspicion, increased sensitivity to threat, increased psychological and physiological symptoms, increased unhealthy coping strategies, increased hopelessness and resentment, dealing and living with black fatigue of always having to work twice as hard to get half as far, decreased self-worth, and a narrowing sense of time. Persons living in a chronic state of danger do not develop a sense of the future. They do not have long-term goals and frequently view dying prematurely as an expected outcome, not because they are mortal, but because they are black. So I am grateful as I look at this evil world that the Lord Jesus Christ said himself, in this life you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Let's, uh, let's give God another hand praise for our panelists here. Um, it's clear to me, um, we, we have some moments left, but it's clear to me that 
um, our next Wednesday night Bible study is going to have to be some breakout sessions on some of these things so that we can get more time for them to, they, I mean, they had more paper than they had time. And so, but we want to give them the opportunity for that. Um, just as we um, do this last part of our time uh, very, very quickly, uh, first I want to want you to understand several things as the church. Number one, say content of the gospel. Uh, Roman, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through about the fourth verse is the content. Um, uh, and so the content of the gospel. Secondly, I want you to say this, the nature of the gospel. Nature. Romans 1.16 is about the nature of the gospel. Um, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe both to the Jew and the Greek. The Jew first, then to the Greek. When you look at those two passages and you hear people say stuff like, in relation to racism, just preach the gospel. Um, it's disingenuous because we have been just preaching the gospel. Um, and the Bible doesn't teach us to just preach the gospel. The Bible teaches us to preach the gospel and functionally, based on Titus 3.14, let our people learn to engage in meeting pressing needs in order that they may not be found unfruitful. In other words, as an outgrowth of the content of the gospel, the nature of the gospel does something empowered by the gospel, not just announcing that the gospel exists. And so as we look at this, I want to give our panelists just a, a few moments to address um, a few things for us that will be very, very helpful to us really, really quickly. Um, and any of you can, can grab a hold of this. What do you think, the, uh, I've heard, uh, Dr. Gill, you and I were talking about this. What do you guys think the impact of racism has had on whites? Because I think we always talk about its impact on blacks. But I don't know if whites realize that race has impacted them. So any one of you grab that one minute for me on that one. I'll respond briefly to that. I think that in the same way that Dr. Lyons laid out yes. a certain kind of psychological and damage that this does on African-Americans, Think about what it means to, you know, the Bible talks about don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Excellent. And I think that in many ways, wow. white privilege sort of affords whiteness an elevated status, yes. right? That, that, that humanity becomes synonymous with whiteness and normalcy, as, as Pastor Larry said, becomes whiteness, right? And so thinking of yourself more highly than you ought is a form of pride, is a form that, that leads to other kinds of sinful behavior. And so this is something, racism, and what I try to lay out is something that has contributed to the brokenness of all of us. It's something that we are all functioning within and the gospel is the only hope. But certainly white privilege does bring about a certain kind of damage um, of, of these privileges, even, you know, well, many times hear folks say, well, my family wasn't privileged and we didn't have money. There still is what one historian calls a wage of whiteness yes. that, is, that is literally quantifiable mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. African-Americans, because of these historic and systemic issues, have not and probably will not ever be able to overcome outside of a miraculous move of God. So certainly it, it impacts all of us. Can, can I also just mm -hmm. say one thing to mm -hmm. that? because I am white. Um, it, it's kind of like asking uh, a fish how it feels to be wet. Fish lives in the water. Um, it doesn't know anything about wetness. We would think it's wet, right? But so, so I, I think that there is that innocuous reality of not understanding it at all and that that's why it's so important and, and listen the, the answer is not white guilt that is not the answer to walk around like oh I'm so terrible because I'm white that's not true that's not true at all uh, but but the answer is to to find yourself in relationships with people of color people that are different from you and to make the biggest part of that relationship listening not talking Amen. To learn. Amen. Amen. Another question I'd like um, for each of you to take one minute, and they'll set each one of you guys up. Um, and so we'll start with Dr. Lyons. What do you guys think um, as the church? Um, because you know that we're trying to, after, out of this over the next few weeks and months, we want to develop an action plan. Um, and this action plan is something that we want to make um, 
viable in how we educate the congregation, but also apply in our neighborhood. I know the elders, we're going out after the third gathering, and we're going to hit the neighborhood with some of our leaders, and we're not going out in like droves, but we're going to go out and ask pastors and talk to the neighborhood about what do they think needs to be done about the current climate, and what, is, what are they feeling about that. But what would you, based on your particular area of expertise, what would you say the church can be doing as one solution item in your area of expertise that you think the church needs to be resourced to and help to be a solution to be a prophetic voice and prophetic practitioner in the current state of things in the United States? Start with Dr. Lyons. Uh, well, I will say, even though now in the DSM-5, uh, PTSD and other traumas aren't considered uh, an anxiety disorder, you still see many of those things show up with people suffering. And so I would remember that one of the main treatments for that is exposure therapy. And so one of the things the church has to do more of is give people a platform and a safe place to expose the truth. So expose the truth of people's stories and expose the truth of the prejudices that people have even when they wish they didn't. And because of sin, there are just certain thoughts and beliefs that people have knee-jerk reactions to when considering whites and blacks. And so one of the things we have to deal with is there is a lot of information that we have hardwired on our brain that we need to unlearn and have uh, redone through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our minds need to be renewed. So we have to deal with the prejudices and the, and the implicit reality that black, dark, man, and big has been associated with ignorant, unsophisticated, and dangerous, and white, light, blonde, and blue has been associated with safe, smart, and, and, and something to be valued. And so we've got to deal with that information that's in us and then let the word of God begin to penetrate so we can unlearn some stuff and learn some new stuff. Excellent. That's good. Absolutely. And building on that, um, as a historian, one of the things I think about, we often think about the civil rights movement and sort of the leaders like Martin Luther King and others who dominated that. But we don't think about what function the church served as an institution, um, as a place of healing, um, as a place where no matter what the messages of the world were speaking to African Americans, it was a place where, of, of dignity, a place of restoration. What would it look like if our local church here was the place where when young men and young women are harassed by police, they come here for healing. They come here to help process that. They come here for answers. And so I would just love to see how we can think about using through the gospel and the institutional space of the church, um, the church as a beacon within communities for those who are being um, hurt, those who are trying to minister, those who are trying to do their jobs, just making the church a particular kind of lighthouse for the restoration for dignity, I think it's important. Excellent, excellent. Pastor Larry. Theological education in our country, uh, particularly among conservative circles, is extremely whitewashed. Um, and and that, that's a major issue that, that many uh, people of color that want to even be involved at, at some of the great seminaries still find it extremely hard on a lot of different levels to either qualify mm. or pay for that type of education. So that, that, that's one level that we need to fight for change on that level. I, th I think also just the nature of, of preaching the gospel uh, in such a way in our churches that addresses the social issues of our day. Now historically, the black church has done that. Uh, but uh, in some of the evangelical white traditions, uh, that is seen as, oh, now, now, you just need to preach the gospel. But this is where we need to get back to what is the gospel. And so I think we really need to educate uh, believers about what the gospel is. Jesus cares about everything, and Jesus cares about everyone. When there are categories that we place to the side and people that are pushed into the corner Again, we've misrepresented the gospel. And so we really need to, to preach a holistic, biblical gospel and, and to press for that as well 
in education. Thank you. Um, I agree with everything everyone up here just said. What I would add to that is just the idea of using our time, our talents, our gifts, our skills for this greater cause because we believe the truth. We walk with the light because we have seen the glorious light of Jesus Christ and we need to take that light into this darkness. I, I often like to tell a story about Louis Farrakhan. He talked about how we see, we see the man that he has become. And we obviously don't agree with, the, with many of the things that he says, but one of the things he talks about was when he was a young man, he went to many churches. And those churches were not concerned with the condition of his day and how he could go outside and see little regard for how he could see the church paying little regard to what was happening outside of their four walls. And then someone invited him to attend a meeting with the Nation of Islam. And we see what's happened next. And this is the idea of that they were actively and continued to actively engage the community. There was a time, and there's still many places where they offer security for their community, mm. where they feed their people, where they have training and education for their people. And we have similar strengths here within our midst. Um, just within, I'm looking around and I see so many of you all who are trained, who are educated, who are well-meaning and have the potential to do something like that. And we need to do something like that. This church is doing something like that regularly with the outreach that we have. Pastor Curtis leading this basketball league and literally getting these young men off the streets and bringing them in here every Friday and, and preaching the gospel to them. We need more people doing things like that. If you're a teacher, if you're a counselor, if you're an attorney, if you're a doctor, if you're a student, if you sweep floors, all of those things do to the glory of the Lord, but then find a, a, find a moment in that space to, um, to be light and darkness, because that's where the, that's where the light needs to be. Um, Dr. Gill, the question for you. Um, one of the things when we talk about the solution side of things, we have, we, and you've talked about this quite a bit, and what, what, what are your thoughts on um, mis re-educating in light of miseducation of American history? Like the other day you and I were talking about, you know, whether it's talking about, um, like one of the things that you hear people say, like I get white trolls on my Facebook and Twitter page, and not all, I have a lot of supportive sages and great people, but then there are uh, those who kind of act like we all have level ground. And, but there's a miseducation in the American system of how we even communicate history. Um, how do we, on the solution side, push forward a re-communication of the narrative of America in what it actually is, if that makes sense, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big job. And I think that's part of what we have to realize is what we're up against is not just a simple, okay, if we just let people know how things really happen, then things will change, right? That even with, th this is why we need the gospel, right? Because it's mm -hmm. about a penetration of truth. It's yeah. about truth taking hold of the heart, right? That, that our hearts are deceitful and wicked, right? That, that there has to be a spiritual surrender, I think, before even this information that we're trying to convey gets through. Um, so I think that's on one level, on sort of the, the hardened level. I think for those who are really trying to struggle with this, right, that there are some folks who may not understand this may not have been given this information because this information is not widely shared, um, particularly in K through 12 education. Most I know for myself, my own education, I didn't even learn about African-American history and this complexity until I went to college and to graduate school. And that's intentional, right? That's intentional. It's, it's the same reason why for enslaved people were legally forbidden from learning how to read and write. That with information comes a, a beginning of a, a chipping away at this power and privilege. And so part of why our education systems are in such disarray um, is, a, is, is a political issue, is an issue of white privilege and power. So we have to be very careful to, to not just convey information, but be backing that up with the spiritual work that needs to happen for hearts and minds to even begin to process it. Because the information's out there, right? You can find out how to do anything you want or learn anything you want by looking mm, it up on the absolutely. Google. You know, you can, build, you can do all sorts of things. <laughs> and so what has happened though, particularly in this social media age, which makes it even more difficult, 
is that people are clustering and surrounding themselves with people who are speaking and saying the things they want to hear, right? So if we look at our media, you can, if you have a particular kind of mindset and outlook, you can just get news that feeds that, right? Mm. And so I think as believers, sure. what we always need to be doing um, is, is, is making sure that we are reading widely, that we are listening to people who disagree with us. And, and we're in this political culture where these camps are set up and no one even talks to one another, right? And so I, I think that we have to push against this social media silo of life where we're only rolling with people who believe what we, who say what we say and think what we say. The way that, you know, Jesus encountered people all the time who disagreed with him. He was never afraid of that. He asked questions. He engaged folk. And so that's what I think we have to be willing to do as believers, is to, to get ourselves out of these very narrow worlds in which we live. And segregation is, allows for that, right? That you can live around people who look like you. You can read what you want to read. You can have these different things. And so as believers, we don't get to rest on that. We're always supposed to be fully engaged in the world in which we live. That's great. Dr. Lyons, um, let me give you the last question. What um, do you think? Um, that's, I mean, because you, you all presented um, a very broad scope, to me a broad scope of information that I think is the beginning working groundwork for the gospel in all of these different facets by which you talked about things from a perspective of your expertise. But when you capping things off, um, I felt, I've heard non-Christian social media formats, uh, rants on YouTube uh, uh, by non-professionals on this idea of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I've heard you say, of course, we're not using post-traumatic stress disorder as an excuse, but we're using it as a way to talk about the impact that that particular sin of racism has had on the experience of black people in America. What do you say is a solution for the church as some ground, I mean, you know, some beginning groundwork, if you will, to begin, not at the church as a community to be a clinical community like professionals, but in some way, shape or form, being a clinical community, spiritually and naturally, and providing a way to begin for us on that end to work through acknowledging and engaging and healing from the post-traumatic stress disorder that African Americans have experienced because of the seasons of intensity of race in this country. Yes, wow. Um, absolutely, I believe the church should be a fertile healing ground for people to work through their issues. Um, number one, because not all people can afford therapy. Number two, not all people trust therapists. And number three, not all therapists are uh, culturally informed or Christ-centered. So when we think about the microaggressions that people experience in terms of um, habitual racism and re-victimization, African-Americans oftentimes are going to white therapists and being re-victimized because the idea of their racist experiences are minimized. Mm. And so if people are being, if their experiences are being minimized, there's really no safe place to work that out. And so the church has to be responsible for in some way having a Jehovah Rapha, like a healing, like the Lord our God is our healer, mm. uh, component to the ministry of the church so that we also don't, you know, take ourselves off the hook and say, that's not my area of expertise. Yes, sometimes we need to refer, but then we need to raise up a generation of people and identify people already in the church with the skill and the training that can do some of this work in-house for people so that where there's already relational capital. And we also need to give people a safe place to share and to vent and to let, because really one of the primary treatments, even when you think about anxiety disorder or even the treatment of trauma, is letting people re-experience the trauma openly, safely, talk about the feelings, being able to not push them away or suppress them. And so we need that to happen for African Americans. We need white people to be able to talk and we need to hear each other's trauma, confusion, hopelessness, helplessness, and just even the idea of talking it through. Yeah. We don't have to, we, psychotropic medication is helpful and in many cases it's needed, but the power of the tongue, the Bible says, confess your faults one to another and be healed. There is power in the confession, not only of the fault, but also the trauma that the church has to be gained for hearing and not shy away from. Amen. 
Um, well, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to be dealing more with this, to be honest, since this series has sort of sprung on me myself. Be praying how we even deal with this next week and the week after. Um, usually, I'm a planner. Anybody knows me, I do a 24-month preaching calendar. So, um, so for the most, and then the Holy Spirit does what he does, but we plan and he edits. But and he's definitely editing. So be praying for us as we work through what the next few weeks is going to be like. Then um, uh, we want to develop an action plan so that in, we're not going to try to cover everything because I don't think one church can do everything. But I want us to, in some way, uh, spark the beginning of churches beginning to stop ignoring uh, uh, th th these issues of race and doing other things that don't lead to healing and shalom in the community. That's why so many millennials right now are feeling that the, the church is irrelevant because we've been extremely silent on these issues. And because the millennial, which I think I, a lot of people are down on the millennial generation, I think it's just a generation that's real and like we want to see something actually happening and we sick of people acting like ain't nothing wrong and a whole bunch of stuff wrong, but y'all call us dumb, but y'all the adults and y'all been here longer than us and y'all keep ignoring it, but we all need to do something and we know something need to be done. So we're not going to deal with y'all until y'all willing to know that we need to deal with these things so that we can move forward or we not hanging with y'all. That's, that's basically it, you know. And so, and so, um, and so for us, I think that that's important for us to engage. As we close, men, I want y'all to go ahead and let's, let's, let's go ahead and start setting up for communion. But I, I want to end on this because I want this to undergird our, um, our hearts because they've shared some hopeful and some daunting things, haven't they? And in light of those things being daunting, you got to remember that like we have the hope. Like we're not like doing this acting like we die and go in the grave and that's it and we either reincarnated or our children is the way our legacy is. Like, there's a God that's coming back and that's going to set up his kingdom on planet earth and take care of all of this. However, we don't look at the sweet by and by as a way to be stagnant, lazy, and foolish here, but we utilize it as a way to be sneak previews of coming attractions. So in uh, Romans chapter 15 verse uh, 13, it says, may the God of hope I love this. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That is what we, no matter how bad it gets, we get, and I'm going to talk about this, somehow during our time is lamenting and what that is in worship. Yet even in the idea of the, the spiritual role of lamenting in our lives, we have to have hope. And we're supposed to abound in hope. Abounding in hope is the recognition of the fact that there's deeply hellacious circumstances that demand us to be despairing. But because of what Christ has done on the cross for us, we can abound in the fact that that's not the end of the story because God has already wrote the ending of it. And so...